Let's turn together, if you do not mind, to Acts chapter 13. For quite a while, we have been working together through the book of Acts. We took a break over the summer to spend time in the Psalms. As people travel and are away, we wanted as much of our church family as possible to be able to track with us through the book of Acts. It's been a little bit of a funny time, obviously, because we've been having joint services with Berlin from time to time. We're planning on that again next week. But I, I hate feeling unrooted in the Word. Our, our custom here is just to take a book of the Bible and just work through it as long as we have to. And so until we have finality in what God is leading our church toward, every time we meet here, uh, God willing, we're just going to be right back in the book of Acts. Our elders chose this book because we wanted to see a couple of things. Number one, we wanted to see the continued work of the Lord Jesus. That is to say, He did not just work on our behalf, living a righteous life, dying as our sinless substitute, raised to a powerful resurrection, conquering sin and death, and then ascend to the right hand of the Father, and then kind of go on hiatus. Jesus has rested from His work of redemption here on this planet, but He is working now through His chosen people, the church, to continue His rescue mission. So, first of all, as we've been looking at the book of Acts, we have wanted to see the sovereign work of the Lord Jesus that continues to this day. However, connected to what I just said, we have a responsibility, a calling, to join Him on this mission. Now, were I to just say that and leave that hanging out there, we would all feel probably quite oppressed and insufficient for the task. For how is it that a church like ours, even joined together with other good churches spread around the globe, how is it that we are to accomplish the task of reaching the roughly 7 billion, the B, people that live here on this planet, the vast majority of which have not bowed their knee to Jesus Christ, and a large percent of which have never even heard of Jesus Christ. So as we look into the book of Acts, we find that the Lord Jesus continues to work, and secondly, connected to that, He will work through us as He calls us to join Him on this rescue mission. We are not alone. That is to say, though we are commanded by the Lord Jesus to take His good news to the ends of the earth, we do not do this in our own power. And if all peoples everywhere, people from every tribe and tongue and language will be present with us in the end when the Lord Jesus is praised as the Lamb who will open the scroll and bring to pass the fulfillment of His kingdom here in this earth. We have a role to play. We are part of His rescue mission, but we are not alone. And we will find that over the next couple of times that we are here in the book of Acts. So, we will... Look today at Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 43, at the sovereign grace of God and the mission of the church. So let me pose this question. Do we, collectively and individually, have a role to play in our community, in the farthest reaches of the globe, for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel? The answer to that is yes. But do we do it in our own power? And the answer to that is no. And therein today we will find both challenge and hope. So let's read together Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 43. Again, this is God's Word. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. They were on the island of Cyprus. And they came to Perga and Pamphylia. This is Turkey. 
John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, verse 26, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything, from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. May God's Spirit bless to us the reading of His holy word. The first thing that we see today in verses 13 through 15 is that God providentially directs our steps. What might we conclude from this? What implication does this hold out for us? We should walk in obedient faith. I'm going to give you a four-part outline today and tell you what the passage means and then give you an implication from each of those four sections. So in this first section, verses 13 through 15, God providentially directs our steps. Implication, let us walk in obedient faith. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter 13, Paul, though in a Jewish context known as Saul, along with his companion Barnabas, were in Syrian Antioch, closer to Jerusalem in the land of Israel. 
They were ministering there in a thriving church. And it was to be truly, in many ways, the first missionary sending church. Saul, as he was known in his Jewish context, and Barnabas would have stood out among their peers. And though they served together in what seemed to be an early model of a plurality of eldership, a multiplicity of elders, they were the distinguished ones. They would have been the ones who people would have looked to for great leadership. Paul has been chosen by the Holy Spirit to leave for us a large portion of the New Testament in helping us understand Christian doctrine. Imagine having Paul as one of your teaching pastors. Barnabas would have been the kindest, most encouraging, patient elder you could have ever imagined. And the Holy Spirit shows up to this plurality of elders and says, give me your best. And they didn't balk, they didn't argue, they sent them off. So as we saw in our last section several months ago, that we've taken this break, they went to Cyprus and they began to proclaim the gospel there. Now they have left Cyprus after seeing some fruit there and go into what biblically we know as Asia Minor, it's modern southern Turkey. And as they go to this place, you notice in verse 13, almost a passing comment, John, also known as John Mark, who actually would write the gospel we know as Mark, left them. This will become a major point in the narrative later. Most of you probably know that before Paul and Barnabas are to set off on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them again. But Paul thinks he'll flake out again. And so they divide these really good friends, this this dream team, this apostolic missionary team, will eventually split up over this guy. Theologians for a long time have tried to discern who was right and who was wrong. We won't get to that story in fullness today because we'll wait till we get to it in the text. But we can at least say this. John legitimately didn't do what he was supposed to do. John legitimately was not perhaps even ready for this. But even a bit more foreshadowing, this would not be the end of the story for John. Or as I've already said to you, he was one chosen by the Lord Jesus to leave one of the written Gospels for us. And as you find at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, he calls for John Mark to come be with him, for they have been restored in their relationship. So, I'll, I'll just say this and we'll move on. Your mistakes in life, which are real, and by the way, they're not finished. As much as you wish they were, they're not. You have made mistakes in this life, and you will make more. Most of them are probably not that big of a deal. Occasionally, you're going to make ones that really stand out. But even when you do, God uses sin, as we often say around here, God uses sin sinlessly. It's the only thing that really explains the cross God planned it, but it was the most sinful thing that ever happened, and yet the most gracious extended offer of God ever conceived. Though John failed here, it would not be the end of John's story, and so we'll move on from that, but I want to encourage you with that, that even whenever we fail, sometimes even royally, that is not the end of our story. But God is directing Paul and Barnabas to this point and brings them to this significant city. Pisidian Antioch here in southern Turkey was a significant city of commerce and influence. And Paul and Barnabas went there on purpose because from there, if the gospel could take root, if an early church could be planted, they could reach their region. So this was Paul and Barnabas' custom to go to cities of significance where the gospel could take root. And you find here that as they go into the synagogue, and the reason they did that is because it It connected with their message. The message of the gospel was not some brand new thing that they had concocted or conceived. The gospel grew out of the Jewish faith. It was the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. 
So it made sense to go to the synagogue because they could find a hearing with people from this context. Now, why did the rulers of the synagogue give Paul and Barnabas an opportunity to speak? Had word spread from Cyprus that these guys were talking about this Jesus of Nazareth? This was quite a number of years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Surely, news of what had happened in Israel had spread as far as southern Turkey. Maybe they knew that that these guys were emissaries, apostles of this Jesus of Nazareth, and wanted to hear, in their own hearing, the rumors that they had heard from others. And so they give Paul an audience. Notice in verse 15 that they read from the Law and Prophets. This is what they did all the time. In Orthodox places of Jewish worship today, it is still the same. So they have something behind what we would normally call our platform called an ark. And it's this box, basically, in which there are large scrolls, the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, in other words. And systematically, even to this day, Orthodox Jews read through the law and the prophets so that they might know God and His will and look forward to the time when He will bring all of His promises to pass in a Messiah. So there is always this feeling of expectation. These scrolls that are put in this special box are precious to them. And they're looking to God to keep His promises to them. And essentially what these ruling elders of the synagogue were doing were just throwing Paul a softball. Now if you don't understand the the sports analogy, let me use it in another way. They 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 were just setting him up to preach. And so Paul's like, you really want me to? Here we go. And so, he will in just a moment, and we'll talk about that. But, but notice here before we move on to, Saul, to Paul's sermon, what God's doing here. God's taking John's failure and eventually will turn it around for good. God is directing his apostles, who had to have been sort of anxious, right? I mean, everywhere they went, for the most part, they met opposition. They, they had on Cyprus. They will here at the end of chapter 13, which we will look at next time we are together. And on and on and on, that's the way their experience will be. They will face imprisonment, stoning, lashings. And eventually, as a reward for all of Paul's faithfulness, he will have his very head lopped off. Every time they walked along a road or sat down in another synagogue or proclaimed the gospel in the marketplace, there was a cost to it. We feel that, don't we? Those of us who are seeking to interact with our neighbors, to speak the good news to them, there's always a little bit of unease. We feel uncomfortable. We fear rejection. We don't want to lose relationships. Most of us don't want to really feel out of step, even though we know we're called to be different. But notice, when it really comes down to it, Paul and Barnabas, though in our eyes, were doing something quite remarkable, giving up all that they had. Barnabas was quite a wealthy man. Paul, formerly known as Saul in his Jewish context, was set up on a trajectory for fame. From our point of view, they were doing something kind of remarkable. But I think if you would have said to them, do you see this as remarkable, Paul and Barnabas? They would just say, we're trying to be obedient each day. And therein lies a connection to us. Though most of us will not lay behind all the things that we have, whether it be fame or riches... We are called to remember that that this world is not really our home. As the song that we sang at the beginning of our worship time today, this, this battle cry of the Reformation, a mighty fortress is our God. One of the lines that Luther penned in that hymn, because he and his people felt this, he said, let goods and kindred go, let my stuff 
and let my family go, this mortal life also, even if we have to lay our lives down, Luther said. And, and each day, though we just get this sort of snapshot of it, and it looks remarkable, each day they were just trying to be obedient to their calling. And so I say to you, though, though that may not look like your life, though it may not seem quite as remarkable as Paul and Barnabas' decisions and the course that they walked, we have an opportunity and a responsibility each day to just obey. You know how much we treasure the grace of God here, the, the unilateral provision of redemption in Christ. In other words, we don't do anything to earn it. We talk about that all the time around here. But obedience is not a bad word, my friends. Now, it's always obedience precipitated by, undergirded by, enabled by grace, always. And yet, like Paul and Barnabas, we have a responsibility just to obey each day. So, so what does that look like for you? I will not presume to stand here today and tell you necessarily what that looks like for each of you. But He is both Savior and Lord and calls us to obey Him. And because He is such a gracious Lord who has made us His own and always cares for His people and always will, we can obey Him. So we trust Him because He always providentially directs our steps. Those of us who are a little bit older, I'm somewhere in the middle maybe in there, we can look back and see that. It does us well so I'm going to give you a little challenge here that you can jot on your phone or on your piece of paper right now. It does us well from time to time, maybe even this week, here's your challenge, to find some quiet time and reflect upon how God has done that for you. How He has directed you to your spouse. How He has been faithful to you and your children. How He has led you to this church. How He has led you to your to your vocation, to your occupational calling, how He has brought certain friends into your life, how He has put you in certain neighborhoods. Because too often, whenever we live in the busyness of our culture, and I'm not sure there's ever been a more hectic one than what the one in which we live, we don't take time to think. And I don't think that's good for us. It, it's numbing, and it's not good for our faith. Find some time in the coming days to just get alone with a pen and a piece of paper and prayerfully reflect on what God has done through both successes and failures. And as you look back on what He has providentially done to direct your steps, this gives fuel for your faith for days to come. So we look at the Scriptures that encourages us that we can walk by faith too. And in our own stories, as we take time to reflect, He has done that. For some of you young people, as you're, as you're learning now to walk with Christ, your parents and those of us who are involved in your discipleship, we love to see you learn to walk with Jesus. There's nothing that thrills our hearts more as your parents and as your friends to, to watch you walk by faith. We love that. You can begin to do this now too. As you reflect on what God is doing in your lives as young people. And I want you to learn to do that the rest of your lives. Pay attention. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you discern the movements of God in your lives. Parents, help your kids do that. Tell them your stories. God providentially directs our steps. Let us walk in obedient faith. These verses have almost become cliched to us, haven't they? Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, but there's a reason why they are precious to God's people. Solomon, who had good days and then some horribly dark days, said this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And let me just pause there for a minute. We have this disease, all of us, where we seek to establish our own way and discern our own way and, and be strong. We've had it since the garden. We come by it honestly. 
we, we seek to be in control of our lives, but the Scriptures say, instead of that, in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. In other words, He will, he will direct us to where we need to go. We don't have to be afraid. So, my friends, God providentially directs our steps. Let us walk in obedient faith. And now into Paul's sermon in verses 16 through 25, I think we discern this truth. God always keeps His promises despite what our eyes tell us. Implication, let us trust Him in the waiting. Are you good waiters? Are you good at waiting? I am awful at waiting. I don't like to wait on the road. If I'm driving down South Old State, which by the way, a large portion of which is between 45 and 55 miles per hour, just so you know, and people are going like 10 miles under the speed limit, it drives me crazy. I can't stand it. When I open up my laptop and I need to open an application, and I get my rainbow spinny wheel, and it takes me like 60 seconds to get an application open. Hypothetically, just hypothetically, maybe hypothetically bad words go through my head. And and, and this is coming from a guy who remembers when I had dial-up, right? Like sending an email took like 15 minutes years ago. But as as our world speeds up and technology affords us those privileges, We get so impatient. Our lives are like that more generally. It takes a long time to raise kids. Now, those of you whose kids are out of the house now, you're like, it was a flash, it was a blur. Those of us who are signing permission slips and making lunches and wiping butts and all that kind of other stuff, it doesn't feel like a blur, okay? Waiting is hard. It's especially hard whenever we're going through, through trials and struggles and we can't see our way ahead. We can't see around the, around the proverbial bend in the road. This was true for the Jews. They were, they were still, when, when Paul stood up and, and teed it up, he, they were waiting still in their minds. But what was Paul's message to them? That even in the waiting, God was doing things. Let's just trace this briefly. What did God do for the people in Egypt, verse 17? In the midst of their slavery, while they were waiting for 400 years. That's four centuries. That's a long time. I struggle when I have to wait for four minutes. That's ten generations. He made them great. And then what did He do? He rescued them, end of verse 17. And then when they rebelled against him, verse 18, what did he do? Well, if it had been us, he would have shunned them. He would have cold-shouldered them, but he didn't. (laughs) Notice Paul's language here. He put up with them. In verse 19, he gives them the land. He destroys their enemies and gives them the promised land that he had promised to Abraham. And then roughly, this took about 450 years, so 400 years or so in slavery, 40 years of wandering, 10 years of conquering Canaan. Then he skips ahead after lots of failures under the judges, Samuel the last of which, he gives them Samuel, who's a good leader, but they're not content, and they want a king, which by the way was not evil. The Mosaic law, well before Saul came around, had made provision for a king wasn't wrong to want a king, it was wrong to want a king like their neighbors. They choose Saul, he was tall, he was powerful, and began relatively well, though he did not stay that way. But they suffered under pretty bad leadership for about four more decades. And then in verse 22, notice, God gave them David. Now we know David was imperfect. David did some really awful things. But I think in David's life we all find hope, right? Because as Paul says in verse 22, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Now, on the one hand, you have to say, wait a minute, is Paul wrong here? Is is he just like whitewashing away David's sins? No. 
what God is saying is on balance, David's trajectory would be good. And this lends, this affords us hope because that's mostly us. We have a lot of problems. We commit a lot of sins, right? And yet on balance, because of the faithfulness of Jesus and the work of the Comforter, on balance, our trajectory is toward good. But why was David so significant? Not because he was perfect. He was, he was not the rescuer. But because through him, God would bring the rescuer. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 23. The Davidic covenant that God made with this king, imperfect though he was, came to pass in Jesus. And John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, spent time, spent most of his life proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. He himself was not the Messiah, but he proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. So, in just a couple of minutes, reading it, though we don't know if this was the full sermon, Luke records for us how Paul summarized the story of Israel really quickly. Now, just parenthetically for a moment, let let me encourage you, this is one of the reasons why you should know the Bible holistically, so that no matter what context you find yourself in, you're able to go to the Scriptures and, and use them deftly, carefully, to to speak into any individual circumstance. When the rulers of the synagogue asked Paul and Barnabas if they had something to say, Paul didn't say, hey, give me till next week so I can get a sermon ready. He was ready to go. He was ready in season and out of season. So this is a, a good calling for us to know our Bibles pretty well. Not for the sake of just knowing content, but for the sake of being on mission. Because the Bible is nothing if it's not a record of God's mission to save. So I I, I encourage you to read it like that. Paul had learned to read it like that, not just as a handbook for rules he should live by, but as a record of God's intention to save, finding fulfillment in Jesus. So what is God saying to these Jews and to these converts to Judaism, Gentiles who had converted to the Jewish faith? What's He saying to them? As we look back through the record of God's dealings with His people, what do we see? God always keeps His promises. Let's say you're halfway through the enslavement of Israel in Egypt. You're 200 years in. You know something about what God had told Abraham. God had told Abraham that the people would be enslaved for 400 years. But you get 200 years in, and you think to yourself, this Yahweh I hear about around the campfire at night, does He see me? I'm making brick out of straw and mud, and I have zero rights. What about... Moses' family later on, when the decree went out that all the babies were to be killed, what did they feel like? Were they to continue to to live by faith, living dangerously in a foreign land where they were enslaved unjustly? Could they trust God in, in such a place at such a time? You see, brothers and sisters, our eyes often tell us that everything is all wrong and God will never get it right, that He he can't pick up all the pieces and put it back together, when in reality, all the pieces that we see around us are little shards and slivers of His plan. In other words, God doesn't have to clean up the pieces to bring His plan to pass. Nothing can stop God's plan. So as you look at the pieces of your life that you can't quite piece together into a whole to see what God is doing, He will take all of that and He will make it good. What God is telling these people through Paul's voice here in Pisidian Antioch is that He hadn't forgotten them. That the promise that He made to Eve back in the garden that a rescuer would come that though it took centuries, even millennia, that God had not forgotten. And though our eyes tell us that often things are coming apart and we can't trust Him, the opposite is true. 
In the waiting, God is working. Let's turn together, please, quickly to Hebrews chapter 11. verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, this is great, he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, and when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's us. We're exiles. We're aliens. But in all of life, God promises us that even though our eyes tell us differently, God will keep His promises. How do we know this most clearly? Because, as we learn in verses 26 through 37, as Paul brings his sermon to an end, All these promises find their fulfillment in Christ. So, verses 26 through 37, what's the truth we find here? God's promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Implication, let us find our hope in Him alone. Paul Paul had this ready to go. Paul had spent a number of years by this point getting ready for this. As best we can tell, he had to have his whole theology reshaped. So he went away to Arabia. And as best we can tell, Jesus himself ministered to him and gave him a new education. And the lights came on. And again, as I referenced earlier, he began to read the Old Testament, which was Paul's Bible. The Bible of the early church. He read it no longer as a list, a compendium of of rules and structure, but as a living, breathing story of God's promised redemption in His Son, which was always coming to pass. And now it had come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Paul highlights here in verses 26 through 37 that this Jesus of Nazareth, which surely the synagogue worshipers had heard about, was not just some upstart rabbi that had gained a minor following, but that he was the promised Messiah, greater than his father David, who could not be held by death. And through his crucifixion and through his resurrection, this astounding work of grace was offered to the world as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. You have to think that as Paul came to faith in the Lord Jesus, this one who had been a murderer of Christians, as he came to faith in the Lord Jesus through the sovereign grace of Jesus and began to understand that that these people he had sought to stamp out were the ones who at first had realized just who Jesus was, that every time he turned to his Bible, and read the story of the exodus of the Jews and the provision of God in giving them the land in Canaan and their imperfect though great king, David. And despite their rebellion, God showing them faithfulness, even bringing them back out of exile to give them the land once again and a temple rebuilt. That as as Paul read all these ins and outs of the Old Testament, all all these movements of God, that He discerned in them that, that long though they were, that though God took a long time to bring all of His promises to pass, He always did. 
and that all of these promises find their great fulfillment in Jesus. Paul banked his life on that. And this empowered him and encouraged him and compelled him to take the gospel everywhere he could and proclaim to all of his friends and to his countrymen and to the Gentiles that Jesus was gathering into his covenant people, that Jesus was the answer for their sins. Notice in verse 39, Paul, who would have had the law of Moses memorized by heart, what does he say about the law? You could not be freed by it. We've talked about this a lot. We went together through the book of Genesis. We've gone together through the book of Romans as a church. How were people saved under the old covenant? I won't make you talk out loud. Was it by keeping the law? The answer is emphatically no. How were people under the old covenant saved? Same way we are. How were they justified? By faith alone. The law was never meant to save. Now, the, the law is holy and righteous and good, for it exposes our sin and points us to the need of a Savior, but the law only prepares us for salvation. Salvation is provided in Jesus. And, and notice verse 38, what does Jesus do? He forgives sins and frees us, this is a great phrase, frees us from everything. The dominion of sin, the oppressive requirements of the law, the frustration of life, this broken world and its system, Jesus frees us from all of that. The law was never meant to, the law never could. But in the Jewish faith, by and large, they had taken what was good and tried to turn it into something ultimate, and it couldn't save them. And Paul comes to them and says, all this expectation that we've had as his covenant people, we've been waiting, and now I get to tell you it has come to pass. Isaiah would have loved to have preached this sermon. Ezekiel would have loved to have preached this sermon, Paul at this point in time gets to preach this sermon. All of God's expectations, they've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and we're telling you. But do you see, my brothers and sisters, that that's what we get to do? We have, we have that privilege and responsibility to take this fulfilled message of grace and tell it to our brothers and sisters all around us who are seeking to free themselves in ways that will never work. Religion will not save your neighbor. Success, attainment, it does not offer your neighbor that God has positioned you next to. It doesn't offer them life. Only Jesus can. Let's look briefly at John 1. Aaron read these verses to us earlier. We won't take time to go through the whole passage again, but let's just look at the end in verses 14 through 18. The Word, who was with God from eternity past and was God, the Word became flesh. This is Jesus. He took on flesh. He became a man. And He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Notice these last two verses, verses 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And that's what Paul is saying to this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. 
Jesus has come and he is the fulfillment of all God's promises. So as his people, we find our hope in him alone. And then lastly, in verses 38 through 43, we find this truth. God delights in forgiving sinful people. Sometimes you'll hear in in bad, though I think well-meaning evangelical theology, that that the, the fall happened, Adam and Eve fell from grace, the world was all fouled up, so, so God cleaned it up with the flood and, and left Noah and his family. But then it got fouled up again. And, and God's like sitting back in his proverbial armchair, whatever, surveying what's going on, thinking, all right, we, we got to come up with some kind of plan. So let's form a subcommittee, which is what religious people do, right? And l- let's try to come up with a, a master plan. So they, they workshop it. And finally, Jesus, you know, offers himself up to be a sacrifice. And God's like, that's a perfect idea. That we'll, we'll do that in a few centuries. Sometimes you hear that kind of explanation of the gospel from evangelical teaching. It's wrong. We know, as we learned recently in our teaching through Ephesians, that in chapter 1, God decided this before the foundation of the world. It was his intention. God delights in forgiving sinful people. If he didn't, he wouldn't have created this world. God was not caught unaware by the fall of humanity. God knew full well it would happen. So God the Trinity made a covenant. Before he ever made a covenant with man, God the Trinity made a covenant that they would come and they would rescue the world and it would come through the incarnation of the Son of God. This means that in this world, God delights in highlighting His grace. So what does Paul do at the end of his sermon? Well, he calls them to repentance. And notice that people are really, really intrigued by this. So verse 42, the people begged him that these things will be told in the next Sabbath. The many Jews and devout converts to Judaism Come to Paul and Barnabas and speak with them because they're pricked to the core and they're hoping that what Paul and Barnabas is saying might actually be true. And Paul and Barnabas urge them to continue in the grace of God. Seemingly, some of them were converted on the spot. So, what do we say to our neighbors who are seeking salvation and insufficient gods, false messiahs? We tell them that Jesus delights in saving and he alone can save. And we call them to trust Jesus. Not not their faith tradition, not their stuff, not their attainment, but Jesus and Jesus alone. The implication of this truth is that we are to join Jesus on his rescue mission. This is not our rescue mission. This takes a lot of the, the responsibility off of us. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28? Go, make disciples, tell them everything I've said, and baptize them in my name. And then he gives them a promise. I'm with you to the end of the age. The story of the early church is a record of how Jesus continued to work through his people. And so I say to you, to to us as a church, we we are called to extend this message of redemption that, that our neighbors can be freed from everything. But we're not alone. You cannot change a person's mind. You cannot transform a person's heart. That's Jesus' prerogative and his alone. This is his rescue mission, and we're just joining him on it. This is what fueled Paul and Barnabas. They were not individually remarkable men because they were just really, really brave. They were men like like us. They were people like us, but they knew they were joining the sovereign God of eternity who always worked through failures and successes to bring His promises to pass, and nothing could stop it. And so we joined that God who is full of power, limitless in power, and full of love, unfathomable love. We join that God on this mission. God has delighted in forgiving sinful people like you and me. But the tragic reality is is that there's people all around us that are perishing and going to hell today. And we do not get to say, well, God's sovereign and he'll work it out. God is sovereign. 
and he will work it out. But God works it out through us. We are the ones that he has called to join him on this mission. Let's turn lastly to 2 Corinthians 5 and, and see how our calling intersects with the mission of God. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Notice down in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who raised who for their sake died and was raised. And look in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this, verse 18, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God providentially directs our steps. Let us walk in obedient faith. God always keeps his promises despite what our eyes tell us. Let us trust him in the waiting God's promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Let us find our hope in Him alone. And as we saw at the end of our passage today, God delights in forgiving sinful people. Let us join Him on His rescue mission. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now take Your Holy Word and apply it to our hearts. May our minds remember and understand and may our hearts embrace it. Do this for the glory of Jesus. And do this for the good of neighbors and nations, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.